نیستید Good morning. I want to welcome everyone watching us online. Welcome everyone across the street at the video venue as well. We're excited that you're here with us today as we continue our series on Jonah. Um, my dad is out of town this weekend. He had the opportunity to officiate a wedding for my cousin, his uh, nephew, and so uh, he really enjoyed that. Get to see a lot of family. Uh, so I get the opportunity to fill in for him today as we continue on in our series. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. If you haven't already done that, you can just hold your place there. Uh, we are going to look at both chapters today. We are going to read both chapters today, but uh, we'll break it apart a little bit so it's not too much in one setting. Most people, I think, learn about the story of Jonah as children. It's a great story to teach children because it's an unbelievable story. Everything that happens in it is, is very entertaining uh, in a way. But one of the things that I believe we learn very quickly as we study the book of Jonah is that it's not really a children's story. I mean, we meet a prophet who runs from God and refuses to obey him. This prophet is not motivated by love or mercy or grace. He's motivated by a racism and nationalism, a desire to see other nations and other people groups destroyed. Next week, we will see the same prophet who is angry with God and, and bitter with God, but not because of punishment, not because he thinks he's been treated unfairly, but because God extended grace to people. I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning. I'm not saying that we shouldn't teach these stories or, or any story in the Bible to children or anything like that. I'm merely saying that if we only ever leave it uh, as something we learned as children, we're going to miss out on a lot of truth, a great deal of wisdom and insight and knowledge. I don't believe that there is such thing as a children's story when it comes to the Bible. And what I mean when I say that is, you know, a story you learn as a child, but then you kind of grow out of it as an adult. That's not what we see in the power of God's Word. We can think in terms of Paul's illustration to the people in Corinth when he said, you know, he gave them spiritual milk because they were not yet ready for solid food. When we learn these stories as children, we receive spiritual milk, and there's value in that. There's, there's the ability to nourish us when it comes to that. But as we grow, as we mature, as we experience more and more, we need to go back to some of the familiar stories, if you will, and receive the solid food that we can get from them. I think this is particularly true when it comes to the story of Jonah. I think that it's easy to get caught up in the simplicity and the wonder of everything that happens. We see the storm. We see the giant fish. Uh, we see God's compassion on an entire city. And it's an incredible thing. But we know there's a lot more going on here than just those things. My guess is if you learned about this story when you were a child, you didn't... Um, realize all of that when it came to Jonah and his motivations. It's not something you talk about in Sunday school. So already, you know, we see something that, that you might have missed out on as a child, but it doesn't end there because we also see a great deal about God. If you remember from last week, you know that Jonah is not the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. We see a God who, who loves people and who chases after them even when they 
run from him. We see a God who offers grace to everyone regardless of race, nationality, background, spiritual, uh, upbringing, anything like that. And we see a God who is always in control. Always in control. And you know, I want to encourage you, if you haven't listened to the message from last week yet, to, to find some time to do that uh, today. Jonah is. It's one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. It's, it's up there with David and Goliath in that regard. You can meet people all over the world who've never even been to church and, you know, have some level of understanding when it comes to what the book of Jonah is about. Obviously, they wouldn't necessarily grasp the finer points, but they know the story of the man being swallowed by a fish after running from God. But don't settle for just being familiar with something in God's Word. So if you need to, listen to the message, read chapter 1, spend some time in it on your own. That being said, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page this morning before we move into chapters 2 and 3, though. So I want to give you just the cliff notes of what happened last week. We saw God call on Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and preach. Jonah did not want to do that, so he got on a boat and sailed in the complete opposite direction. Not long after this happened, God brought a supernatural storm to stop the boat. The sailors fought against it, tried to get to safety, but they had no ability to do that. And when all their options had run out, they decided to cast lots and find out whose fault it was that this storm was basically attacking them. Well, of course, the lot fell on Jonah. So when they asked Jonah what they should do, he said, throw me overboard. And the moment they did that, the storm stopped. And this is what we see in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. As I said, we're going to read both chapters 2 and 3 today, but we're only going to read uh, chapter 2 right now, and then we're going to talk about it and then break up chapter 3 a little bit later. So would you go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word? You can follow along. Jonah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it, this is my favorite part, vomited Jonah onto dry land. Thank you. You may be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, I broke down these two chapters into three parts. I tried to keep them as pretty... Uh, keep them simple, keep them straightforward. So if you're taking notes this morning, you can go ahead and write this down next to number one in your handout. You can write down the prayer. Write down the prayer. And that's really what chapter two is. This is Jonah 
recounting for us, sometime after all this has taken place, what he prayed from inside the belly of the fish. Now, the time that Jonah spent inside the belly of the fish is one of the things that makes the story so great, but it's also one of the things that makes the story so unbelievable. Last week, we talked about a few possibilities. You know, what, what did this actually look like? How did he actually spend this time in the belly of the fish? The first possibility was what we just called the natural possibility. And, you know, this really had more to do with, excuse me, the way the Hebrew calendar works as opposed to anything that happened with Jonah inside the fish, you know. Instead of it being three full days and three full nights, there's the possibility that it could have just been an evening, a day, and a morning. And so while, yes, it's still unbelievable, he didn't spend nearly as much time in there as we might think. The second possibility is the miraculous one. And, you know, there's really not a whole lot of explaining when it comes to this option because it's, it's basically we take the Bible at its word. God did this. God miraculously brought this fish. It swallowed Jonah. God miraculously sustained Jonah while he was inside the fish, and, and that's just what happened. The final possibility is the resurrection possibility, and this is the idea that while Jonah was in the fish, he actually died. At some point in the process, he died, and then God brought him back to life so that he could go to Nineveh and preach. Now, I'm not going to tell you what you should believe when it comes to these options this morning. Um, What I am going to say, though, is regardless of what you think happened, regardless of how you think it all took place, Jonah being inside the belly of this fish had to be one disgusting experience. Uh, I know that I keep talking about the fact that so many of us come to this story or first hear about this story as children. And because of that, I think there is a temptation to continue to view this story, or certain aspects of it at least, through the eyes of a child. And so when we think about Jonah being inside the fish, and we think about him being swallowed up, you know, yeah, it's gross, it's a fish, he's in the, he's in the water. But we kind of picture this, you know, large, open, cavernous space. If any of you have ever seen the old Disney movie Pinocchio, you know that at one point in the movie, he gets swallowed by a whale. But that it's more like he's in a cave. I mean, he's not alone in there. He has room to walk around. He's on a raft. You know, there's a ton of space. And I think that's the way that some of us tend to picture what it was like for Jonah inside this fish. And here's the deal. You know, I, I will say this. Maybe it was like that. I'm, God certainly has the ability to make that happen. I'm not going to dismiss that possibility. But I think more likely is the fact that Jonah was stuffed and squeezed inside the belly of that fish, and he didn't have room to do anything but breathe. How many of you, how many of you like to eat fish this morning? Okay, so not very many of you. Saturday night, like every hand was raised on Saturday night. I don't know if I can trust those people anymore after that, because that was a pretty unbelievable response. So... Yeah, from what I talk, from who I talk to and who I ask about this, it doesn't seem like fish is um, consistently a very popular thing that people want to eat. And the response I hear most of the time is that it smells bad. I mean, it tastes bad too, but it usually doesn't even make it that far because the smell gets in the way of wanting to eat it. So that's the reality for a lot of us. And I know this firsthand because my wife hates fish. She hates it. I'm not allowed to order it when we go out to dinner. 
And if we're ever out to dinner and someone near us orders fish, she's told me before that her meal is ruined because everything that she eats now starts to taste like fish. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, if you know someone like that, maybe you're like that, uh, but it definitely has this strong odor about it. And so uh, I say all of that to say this, I want you to just think for a moment what it was really like for Jonah inside that fish for three days. This was not a pretty experience. I mean, there is the stench that's undeniable. There's the, the motion, the constant motion of the fish as it swims and him having to deal with that. There's the stench, which is probably pretty terrible. There's the change in pressure as the fish goes up and down in the water. There's the stench that he has to deal with while he's in there. There's the stomach acid and the stomach contents, which like Jonah is the stomach content. So that's kind of crazy. And on top of all of that, he has the stench to deal with too. And I don't think that that washed off pretty quickly. And I doubt he had enough deodorant with him to take care of it. So what does Jonah do? What does Jonah do inside the fish? Well, honestly, I think he does what every single human being on the planet would do if, for whatever reason, they found themselves swallowed by a fish. He prays. He prays to God. And in his prayer, we see Jonah crying out for deliverance. You know, he didn't want God to save the people of Nineveh. He didn't want God to give the people of Nineveh any warning about the destruction that he wanted to bring upon them. He didn't even like the idea of a God who was willing to think about saving the people of Nineveh. And here he is in the water, in the fish, begging to be saved. And, you know, I think we get an, an idea that Jonah probably sank down pretty deep before the fish got him. He probably experienced all sorts of hopelessness in this moment. You know, one of the things we read uh, in chapter 2 is that he says, you know, from the depths. So he was down in the water. He says, to the roots of the mountains I sank. Again, I don't know if you kind of picture him paddling around on the surface, just waiting to see what's going to happen next. But what we get from the scripture is the idea that he was thrown overboard and immediately he starts to sink down toward his death. God saves him. And because of that, Jonah gets the chance to pray. And in the first six verses of chapter two, really what we see more than anything else, I'll simply say it like this, is Jonah acknowledging God. It's Jonah acknowledging God. And that might sound strange. It might sound a little too simplistic. But you have to think about the fact that up to this point in the story, Jonah has not done that. Jonah has done everything he can to ignore God and dismiss God and disobey God. And so now that he's here, he acknowledges him. You know, God is the one that threw him into the sea. He says it's God's waves and breakers that swept over him. He, he uses the word banished to describe his standing with God at this moment. But he also realizes that God is the one that saved him. God extended grace to Jonah in a very real, very tangible, very practical way. God wants to do that. God wants to use Jonah to extend grace to the people of Nineveh. God wants to, to save those 
who actively run away from him. I think sometimes we forget about that. You know, I've always wondered, I've always wanted to know what would have happened if Jonah had prayed and cried out to God and repented when he was still on the ship during the storm. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I don't know if you ever read stories in the Bible and go through a lot of what-if scenarios. Maybe uh, you think that that's a little dangerous. Uh, It's something that I tend to do for better or worse a lot. When I read the story of Jonah, I always wonder what would have happened if he had just prayed to God when he was still on the boat. I'm not saying with 100% certainty or anything like that, that the storm would have stopped and that everything would have been all right and, and everything would have turned out good, but I am curious nonetheless. And given what we know about Jonah, given what we talked about last week and what we saw in chapter one, I can't help but wonder if even in that moment, even, even standing on the ship with the rain crashing down and the waves breaking against the boat and, and the, the sailors just at their wit's end with no options left, even in that moment, if he was still so prideful that he thought to himself, I would still rather die than help the people of Nineveh. And so when the sailors come to him after casting lots and they say, what should we do? Instead of him crying out to God for help, even though, you know, they've done everything they can do, they've already cried out to their gods, you know, little G for help. Instead of doing that, instead of taking that step, he says, you know what? Just throw me overboard. I can't help but wonder if that's what motivated him. Either way, once he begins to sink down toward his death... He has a change of heart, and he cries out to God, and he asks to be saved. And I'm not trying to be too cynical here or too hard on Jonah or anything like that, because I do believe what we read in chapter 2 is genuine. I do believe we see, especially in verses 7 through 9, that that Jonah is repentant. Jonah Jonah does have a change of heart, and that is a big deal. But I, I think that we also can be a little bit dismissive of just how prideful and just how stubborn Jonah was in this moment. I came across an idea that I really liked when I was studying for this message, and and it really just talked about Jonah and the fact that he was called to go and preach grace to the greatest city in the world at that time, but the truth was he didn't really understand grace. He didn't understand grace in his own life. He was one of the Israelites. He was one of God's chosen people. And so, just like the Pharisees that we see interact with Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament, just like they thought they didn't need any grace, they didn't need any help from God, they were Abraham's descendants, it didn't really apply to them, so Jonah has that same attitude. He didn't really understand grace in a real way. He didn't think he needed to be saved. He thought he'd already won the lottery by the fact that he was born into the tribe of Israel. But after he experienced grace, after God saved him, after he had this time inside the fish to pray and and contemplate and, and deal with all of this, he does have that change of heart and he is willing to listen. And so after all of that, God commands the fish and Jonah ends up on dry land. So, You can go ahead and write this down next to number two in your handout. We're working our way through here. Number two is the preaching. The preaching. Jonah's on dry land. God's about to call him again. 
And this time Jonah has a different response. I'm just going to read the first four verses in chapter 3 here. You can just follow along from your seats. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. You know, a crucial part of the whole, uh, well, a crucial part of the message last week was the reality that grace is the reoccurring theme that we see in this book. I hope you understand that. Grace is the reoccurring theme that we see over and over again in the book of Jonah. And you know, certainly it's obvious and uh, easy to think about that, how uh, it applies to the people of Nineveh, the fact that God uh, offers them this chance to repent. If you remember from last week, the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians, they were a pagan people. They were brutal. They were a constant threat to the Israelites. They were wicked and and evil in every way imaginable. imaginable. Uh, But at the same time, you also see it pretty obviously in the life of Jonah. We see it over and over again, you know, the fact that he was given a second chance by being saved by the fish, and then given a second chance after he's spit out onto dry land. Jonah hears this call, and this time he obeys. So he goes to Nineveh, and in verse 3 we read that Nineveh was a very important city. Now literally what is written here, uh, it says it was a great city to God. It was a great city to God. And this is a reference to the size of Nineveh, the scope of Nineveh, if you will. But at the same time, it speaks to the reality that this city and the people in this city mattered to God. They mattered to God. Jonah is the only prophet actually sent by God to preach repentance to a foreign land. I think that's all part of God's plan to show just how gracious he really is. You know, God doesn't want to punish people. He wants to be compassionate toward them. I think it's part of God's plan to show the people of Israel what they should be doing, how they should be living. They need to be telling people what God is like and how great God is and how wonderful and merciful God is. And I also think, honestly, this morning, that it's a way for God to shame the people of Israel a little bit. And I say that because when you read the Old Testament, you see God communicating to his people through prophets over and over again. But what do the people do to the prophets that God sends? I would say that they ignore them at best and they murder them at worst. Either way, they don't listen to God. They don't follow God. And so by sending Jonah to the Assyrians, maybe to the largest city in the world at this time, you know, to a group of people who worshiped fish gods and preaching to them about a coming judgment and therefore giving them an opportunity to repent, it's a way to show the Israelites just how stubborn and unwilling to listen to God they were compared to other people. I mean, after the kingdom split... You know, you have David and you have Solomon, and then after Solomon dies, the the kingdom of Israel splits in two, and you have the northern kingdom and you have the southern kingdom. Well, the northern kingdom, they never had a good king. They never had a king that followed God. They never had a king that did what God wanted them to say. If you ever go through the Bible and read about the northern kingdom, it always begins by saying the name of the king and then saying, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
That's a big deal. And this is despite all of Israel's history. This is despite the reality that God sent prophets to the northern kingdom to try to get them back on track, to try to get them to pay attention and understand what was going on. And so now we see God send a prophet to Israel's enemy. And we see God reach out to them. And he proves that these pagan people were more open to the power of God than his own chosen people in spite of everything he had done for them in the past. Jonah preaches. Jonah preaches. He says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And really what happens next, I think, is more unbelievable than Jonah being swallowed by a fish because the people listen. Write this down next to number three in your handout. The pardon. The pardon. Much to Jonah's surprise, no doubt, the people believe him. But they don't just believe him in their minds. They act on his warning. They act on what he's told them. I want to read what happens in verses 5 through 10. Again, you can just follow along from your seats. It says, The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let him give up their evil ways. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Now, like I said, that's, I think that's more unbelievable than Jonah being inside of the fish. I mean, I feel like we have to acknowledge the reality that this is nothing less than a divine work of God. And we know that the book of Jonah is a favorite for critics to attack because it is unbelievable. There, is, there, is so many, there are so many things that happen here that, that defy explanation. You know, people try to explain away how Jonah spent time in the fish, but people also try to explain away what happened in the city of Nineveh when Jonah preached. And so you have historians, you have scholars, and they say things like a series of military defeats, a period of civil unrest, and some natural disasters had all happened recently. And all of these things combined to create the perfect atmosphere for Jonah to preach in. Now, I don't know about you, but I still think that's pretty unbelievable. But I know that they don't mean it as a compliment. What they mean is that they would have been willing to listen to anybody because of everything that had gone wrong. The reality is, though, there is no natural explanation for what happened. There's only a supernatural one. God used Jonah. God used this rebellious prophet to bring this terrible people a measure of grace. I love verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. And that's how chapter 3 ends. And if you're unfamiliar with the story of Jonah, you might think that this is a happy ending. And, you know, I guess for the people of Nineveh, it is. You might think that Jonah would just kind of ride off into the sunset and celebrate a job well done, that he would go back to Israel and tell them what it was like and how they should behave and the power of God and, and how he experienced that. 
you would be wrong. I mean, Luke 15, I love this. Luke 15, verse 10 says that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And here you have the entire city of Nineveh turn from their wicked ways. And Jonah is not happy. Jonah is no angel. Next week, we're going to see the rest of the story. We're going to see Jonah's true motives revealed and the way God deals with him. And what I want to do for a few minutes for the rest of our time together this morning is is basically what we did last week. I want to go back to the chapters that we just talked about, and I want to pull out some truths, some points that I believe we can learn from and we can, you know, put into practice in our own lives. I think there is a temptation with a lot of the stories that we read about in the Bible to leave them on the page. What I mean when I say that is, you know, we like these stories, we teach these stories, we love seeing the power of God in these stories, but because they're not sermons in and of themselves, because they're not parables and lessons for us, we don't always think there's a lot we can learn from them and apply to our own lives, but that would be a mistake. So I just have four things. I'm sure there are more than this that we could talk about. But four things I want to share with you this morning before we close uh, that we can take with us from Jonah's chapters, chapters 2 and 3. And I've just tried to make them as simple as possible so hopefully we can remember them easily. Number one, be honest with God now. Be honest with God now. I mean, what we see in Jonah chapter 2 is this desperate man talking with God. And based on everything that he had done leading up to this point in his life, I don't think it's a stretch for us to think that maybe Jonah didn't have that great of a relationship with God. Maybe it had been a while since he really prayed and talked with God. And maybe you think that sounds strange. You know, he is an Israelite. He is a prophet. God does speak to him. But he certainly doesn't behave the way that a prophet should. He certainly doesn't seem to to grasp or understand the need for mercy and grace that we would hope a servant of God would. I'm sure many of you know someone or, or have even experienced in your own life a time when you knew that your relationship with God wasn't what it ought to be, when it had been a while since you prayed, even though you can be very faithful and we can be very involved and at the same time be far away from God in a spiritual sense. We need to be honest with God now. God is always honest with us. We can be convicted and confronted by that because of what we see in His Word. We may not like it all the time, but we know that He is always honest with us. But the truth is we're not always honest with Him. And so we see Jonah pray, and you know what he prays is more than just a simplistic, God, if you save me, I'll do this. God, if you save me, I'll be good. It's more than that. There's an openness here. This is, this is him crying out to God. You and I need to be honest with God now. It should not take some kind of near-death experience for us to begin to do that. Number two. Make the most of your opportunities. Make the most of your opportunities. These first two go hand in hand with one another. We don't always get, we don't always get that near-death experience to snap our heads back on straight like Jonah did. And the truth is, we don't always get a second chance either. Now, here's the deal. I've, I've felt the need to really explain this in all the, all the services because I know 
you know, we read the Bible and we understand that God is a God of second chances. God loves to give second chances. God loves to give grace. But at the same time, we cannot just live our lives however we want and think that there will never be any lasting consequences. When we can look to some familiar stories in the Bible, some, some people that we recognize, we can think about Lot's wife. She didn't get a second chance when she turned and looked at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't get a second chance when they lied to Peter about how much they had given to the church after they sold their field. King Saul didn't get another chance when he made sacrifices to God instead of waiting for the prophet Samuel to come and do that. And I don't know, I don't know why this is what struck me as something that I felt the need to talk about this weekend, uh, because we know that God is a God of grace. We know that God gives second chances, but at the same time, we cannot just do whatever we want and bank on that. We can't treat God that way. God will not be mocked. And so we see this, and, and we love the fact that, that God gives Jonah a second chance. We love the fact that God preaches this message to the people of Nineveh, and because of the time, gives them a second chance, gives them the opportunity to repent. But we, we have to realize that we can't just do whatever we want all the time. We need to make the most of our opportunities now. Number three, we need to know that God's expectations don't change. God's expectations don't change. After the fish spits Jonah up on dry land, God speaks to him, and he tells him the exact same thing he said before. He doesn't say, okay, now that we've worked this out, now that you're in a better place, you can go back home, you can tell the Israelites what I've done for you, and I'm going to find someone else to send. That's not what God does. God has the same expectation for Jonah now that he did in the beginning. And I think this is an important thing for us to realize because God has a desire for us. God desires to save us. God desires to have a relationship with us. God desires to use us. And, and nothing that will ever happen will change that desire for us. But the problem comes when we have a desire for a relationship with God, but we want that relationship on our own terms, not on God's terms. Jonah wanted to follow God. Jonah wanted to be an Israelite. He liked that he was an Israelite, but he didn't want to do what God asked him to do. He wanted to just stay in Israel and let everyone else be punished and suffer. But if we want to have a relationship with God, then we have to understand we have to do that on His terms. To have a relationship with God is to do it on His terms. He is God. His expectations don't change. And so if you're here this morning or if you know someone who, who always says, you know, well, I believe in God and, you know, I, I, I'm close to God, but, but they, they only do certain things and they kind of explain away the parts of the Bible that they don't like and they, they have this kind of attitude where, you know, me and God, we, we have an understanding about how things work in my life. That's, that's, not, that's not a relationship with God. That's not Okay. We need to know that God's expectations don't change. Number four, Brian, you can go ahead and come on up and get ready to play. God wants to save people more than we know. God wants to save people more than we know. We talked last week about the reality that God wants to save everyone. 
God wants to save people that you and I probably wouldn't want to save. That's who God is. We love that about God. And we see that truth on display in the story of Jonah because God offers compassion to the people of Nineveh, and it's great. It's a wonderful thing. And, you know, there can be a temptation to think that, well, how genuine were the people really? I mean, this is an entire city we're talking about, but God doesn't punish them, so we believe. We believe that there was repentance there, that they, they turned from their wicked ways, that, that there was value in them fasting and crying out to God and wearing sackcloth. But I think we see this truth about God on display in this story, not just by what does happen, but by what doesn't happen. And I say that because even though the people of Nineveh believed Jonah, they believed God, and they, they, they changed their behavior, we don't see anything that makes us believe they became part of the Jewish nation. You know, we know that didn't happen from other parts of the Bible from the history of Israel. We don't see anything that makes us believe they, they converted and began to only worship the one true God. But God wanted to give them compassion. God wanted to offer them grace. God wanted to do that for them so much more than He wanted to punish them, even though He, of course, had every right to do that. And I think that's a great truth for us to realize because we need to understand that God is not out to get us. God, God is, does not want to punish us. He wants us to be saved. He wants to help us. He wants to bless us. And that's great. But at the same time, I think this truth forces us to ask ourselves a hard question. How much do we want to save people versus how much do we want to see some people get punished? How much do you want to see someone saved? Or are there times when you look at someone, maybe someone you know, maybe someone on TV, maybe uh, anyone from anywhere in the world, and you look at them and you think, you know what, I hope that person gets what's coming to them. I don't believe God ever thinks that. I believe God is holy and God will punish, and that will be a reality. But at the same time, I don't think he ever wants that for anyone. And so we have to find out from our own honest examination whether or not we do. And if we do, we have to change. We have to seek salvation first. We can't be like Jonah and hope that someone gets punished when God hopes that they get saved. Let's pray.